This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. You want to go in the middle? I don't know. Um, I'll go here. You want to go there? Right. Can I share the Yeah. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Um, to a very rare um, spectator event. We haven't done this for quite a while. Uh, it's great, and I hope you appreciate the way that we organized all the government drama to happen today, because <laughs> we're worried things might look a bit sort of, um, I don't know, a bit flat, so we thought we'd mix it up a little bit. Um, now, we have, uh, originally this was about the winter of discontent. First of all, huge apologies for that. This is the autumn of discontent. Or the, I'm not quite sure what you call it today. This is such a mad situation. It's not often that you actually... In one of these days where as a journalist, if you go to the loo, you come out and somebody's resigned. And, and, and James, James was saying to me earlier, he was saying, right, Fraser, this is a day where we've had four events, any one of which would be uh, dominate the news, like inflation hitting double digits, the resignation of the Home Secretary, the resignation of the chief whip. And I'm like, no, no, you've got that wrong. But he's right. The chief whip has just resigned. How many minutes ago was it? A couple. About 12. <laughs> right. <laughs> By the way, can anybody here name the chief whip? Put your hands up if you can. Yep. Who 10 is it? points. Yeah. Wendy Morton. Correct. Excellent. Congratulations. Um, now, if anybody can name the next chief whip, that would be really quite surprising. <laughs> Probably Theresa May at this rate, but who knows. Anyway, so it has been a day where um, Kate and I were just discussing it, whether you react as citizens or as cynical journalists. Now, if you're in the business of political news, this is the best time to be alive. Uh, every sort of you know, half hour, hour or something, when you think things can get crazy, uh, any more crazy, they, they then get a lot more crazy after that. Um, and I was, um, and the other day, that, um, that, 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 that just before I was coming in, I was saying to one of my colleagues, he was saying, he was making a joke about, I think he was joking about um, George Osborne taking a role in government. And I was saying that the rule right now is there is nothing so crazy it couldn't actually happen. That is what we're living through right now. So it's a brilliant um, evening for us to get together and to discuss what exactly is going on in the governments. And I'm really pleased to be chairing this because I personally have got no idea what's happening in the government. I'm very lucky to be joined by three of my fantastic colleagues who do know. So, you know we should do introductions, shouldn't we? I'm Fraser, I'm editor. This is Kate Andrews, our economics editor, James Forsyth, our political editor, and Katie Bowles, deputy political editor. So please, uh, let me know. How many of you listen, don't listen to Coffee House Shots podcast? Okay. You guys should try it. It's really good. <laughs> well, you can tell at the end of tonight if you think our pattern is, is worth it. Um, so this is going to be a live podcast. So I'm, I'm, in a bit, I'm going to go into my intro mode and then we'll do it. And then we're going to talk for a while about this and then we'll take some questions from you guys. So if you can think of questions, and I think one of my colleagues will have microphones to, um, to come down and we can see if we can um, leave this room knowing more than we entered. Um, and if, also, I'm not going to be checking my phone, so if anybody does resign while we're on stage, 
like the Prime Minister, for example, if you can just sort of stand up and shout point of order so we can just take that in as it happens. Okay, so for the tape. Welcome to a live, no, it's not live, is it? Mm. Um, welcome to a special edition of Coffee House Shots for Spectators, Daily and sometimes more than Daily Politics podcast. This time brought to you live, or not even live, this time brought to you at the out live, this time brought to you at the Emanuel Centre in London. Um, I'm Fraser Nelson, I'm joined by Kate Andrews, Katie Bowles and James Forsyth. And I'd like to put the first question to you, James. What on earth is happening? Uh, so it depends what you are referring to. Um, <laughs> the, the, the fracking vote that has just happened. I, I think yeah, well, well, why don't you talk them through? Because the fracking vote is the maddest thing, really. And that's a hotly contested category. But you know, for the government to put a three-line whip ordering MPs to vote against their own manifesto pledge, I can't work it out. So James, what, what was going on? So the 2019 Tory manifesto committed to a moratorium on fracking. Liz Truss ran in the Tory leadership contest, as Richie Sunak did, saying that fracking would be allowed where there was local consent. What was never defined was what local consent was. And it became quite clear from the reaction of Tory MPs that the idea that Jacob Rees-Mogg floated at Tory conference of local consent being local residents just being offered a discount on their energy bills wasn't going to fly. Labour then put down an opposition day debate today where in a tactic reminiscent of those, those Brexit arguments we all remember so well, they were trying to take control of the order paper so that they could legislate to ban fracking. The government, in a classic case of not picking your battles, decided that it was going to tell its MPs that this was a confidence vote this morning. The government then came up with an amendment to it, which actually for the first time did define what local consent meant. And that it, the amendment was a bit like saying, we can all eat turkey for Christmas if the turkeys vote for it. Um, and it then became clear as the day went on that the government had a real problem. You had Chris Skidmore, who is the, in charge of the government's net zero review, who wrote several books of Liz Truss, saying that you know, he couldn't vote for it and he was prepared to lose the whip over backing fracking. You then, just before we came here tonight, you had Graham Stewart, who is the climate minister, say, well, hang on a second, this isn't actually a confidence vote. And it seems that the ensuing chaos has taken the chief whip and the deputy chief whip uh, out of the picture. But James, at what point was this escalated to DEFCON 5, like saying this is a confidence vote? When did that happen? I think and why? They why? They had to do it because Labour were trying to take control of the order paper. And they thought if Labour took control of the order paper, they weren't really governing. But this is not the right moment to ask Tory MPs if they have confidence in their government. Um, and it was the wrong issue on which to do it because, uh, first of all, the 2019 manifesto wants to ban fracking. Secondly, there are certain seats which, if a Tory MP votes for fracking, they are, they are voting for Christmas. Um, and I mean, one of the things that has happened since the mini-budget with the opinion polls that we've seen is that there are very few Tory MPs who regard their seat as safe. Um, I, I was talking to one the other day, and I was like, where are you? And he's like, well, I'm tending my marginal seat. And I said, what do you mean? You've got a majority of 19,000. And he said, exactly. Um, and I think wow. this is what is... So I think what... what, what and obviously, 
adds to a day of chaos when you've got the Home Secretary resigning. Um, and I think it, it, it is all adding that, that sometimes Westminster can kind of turn almost feral, but the, 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 there just, there just is just no discipline, no order. Mm. And we saw that happen with Theresa May during the, 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 towards the end of her premiership and these Brexit votes. Today feel, felt like that. Right. So I think um, it's um, just worth pointing out, and we don't have it double confirmed, but in the list of um, Tory MPs who rebelled and didn't follow the Freeline Whip, that is the chief whip. <laughs> Wendy Morton apparently broke the whip. <laughs> Along with Kwasi Kwarteng, the former <laughs> chancellor. So just adding to the confusion. Right. So, but, but Katie, is this... I don't know. I mean, this looks very much like a government in collapse, though. I mean, we've had lots of, you know, stages of this. We, we, we all remember that sort of rotten parliaments during Brexit where the government lost control completely. Uh, but just to, you know, talk, the last few days, we've had Liz Trust on Friday, wants to regain the confidence of the markets, etc. fires quasi and gets in Jeremy Hunt. On Monday, we then see the extent to which Jeremy Hunt's taking control. So he's coming up with his own, pretty much looks like he's calling the shots. Then, then we see Grant Shapps, um, in, in, coming in as Home Secretary. But who actually, do you get, who is running the show here? For example, do you think it was Liz Truss who decided to sack Suella Braverman? Because there's some reports that it was Jeremy Hunt who decided that Suella Braverman should go. I mean, I think who is in charge depends who you ask. Um, I think ultimately Jeremy Hunt, uh, Liz Truss brought in, and Jeremy Hunt is now effectively unsackable. Um, and that means you're in an incredibly mm. powerful position and you, you can call the shots to a degree. Um, when it comes to, I think Liz Truss appointing Jeremy Hunt was also a tactical move by her. She did have a choice of who she could bring in and give the power to. And I think right now you're seeing a situation where in Downing Street, they view the left of the party as more dangerous to Liz Truss's position than the right, um, because the government is effectively in free fall. And uh, given there's lots of talk, and it's really hard to find an MP right now who thinks Liz Truss should lead the party into the next election. Um, but the question is, when do they move against her? And the left have lots of candidates, Rishi Sunak, Penny Morden, Jeremy Hunt even, even if he says he's not interested, despite going for the job twice before. Um, <laughs> um, whereas the right have Suella Braverman, but I, I think there are doubts that actually should have that many people get behind her. So that's, I think, Jeremy Hunt coming in. I think that's brought Liz Truss a little bit of time, but that was ahead of tonight's messy vote. So it does feel as the temperature's going up again. And then I think Grant Shapps, that is someone who has been organizing against her. Um, ultimately, has been talking about his many spreadsheets and uh, was quite clearly a foe of Liz Truss. Now, by bringing him in, does that help Liz Truss? I think it's right now coming from a position of weakness. So it, it's hard to know if that is going to have such an effect. Because of the, the I, I think we yes. want to understand Swella Braverman's resignation. Yeah. We need to go back to the last live Coffeehouse Shots podcast when you interviewed Suella Braveman at Tory conference. Yes. Because what happened there was you asked her, and I'm not suggesting that any of us will have to resign after tonight, um, you asked her about her views on a mobility component to the India trade deal. Yeah. She said that she wasn't very keen on that because they'd had terrible trouble with Indians overstaying their visas. Yeah. This caused huge ructions with the Indian government. 
And so this trade deal with India, the aim was for a trade deal by Diwali, which was meant to be one of the great you know, successes of the Trust Premiership, um, has now, is now in real trouble. Narendra Modi was meant to come to the UK to sign it. That is now in huge jeopardy. And then what happened here is that as Liz Truss desperately tries to work out ways to fill the black hole that the OBR have identified, she wants the OBR to score a quite liberal immigration policy because that would add to economic Ooh, growth. Right. What happened was that Suella Braveman um, basically sent details of his policy to one of her backbencher allies saying, what do you think of this? Is this what you think we signed up to when we decided to fold in behind Liz Truss in the leadership campaign. She had a fat-fingered moment where she also sent it to somebody else who, in the CC field, who went and told Downing Street that's what she'd done. Uh, Downing Street said, you've broken the ministerial code because you're not meant to share internal government documents with people outside government. So they said you have to resign. So, so technically she was fired because she sent an email from the wrong accounts. Yes. But the, the real tension, the real reason, we will see it tomorrow when, when this statement is published, presumably by Grant Shapps, is the real tension is about getting the OBR to score a more, liberal economic, uh, a more liberal immigration policy to try and reduce the size of the black hole that the government is dealing with. Right, so Joseph, this, this sounds like a pretty serious then policy divide because in the last Tory manifesto, one of the pledges was to get net immigration down. You might remember David Cameron had this pledge of getting it to the tens of thousands which he never did. And the idea was after Brexit, people didn't mind about that so much because they were more in control of it. But there were two wings then. You've got the Liz Truss wing, where she likes immigration, because, I mean, technically you can flatter your GDP. The more people you let in, the more people they will generate wealth, etc. cetera. Uh, but Suella Braverman was saying, she was actually almost making up her own pledges, Home Secretary, saying she wants to go back to the David Cameron tens of thousands era. So you had a massive split here between the Home Secretary, who was, I wouldn't say going rogue, but pretty much declaring herself dedicated to a low immigration policy. And you're saying the Prime Minister's economic plan depended on high immigration policy. Yes. And I think one of the tensions is that because of all the issues about the OBR, not having an OBR forecast for a mini-budget, this OBR forecast has become absolutely central mm. to the success of the Halloween fiscal event. And the OBR... Wait, wait, sorry. You guys know about the Halloween fiscal event. We're going to... Um, 31st of October, the government's going to let us know its spending cuts. Yeah. And the OBR are saying, well, hang on a second. If you want us to score this more liberal immigration policy, we're only allowed by statute to score government policy. So you've got to say explicitly that this is now government policy. That is what the tension between Truss and Braveman was about. That's basically why she has gone. Okay, so James, just to finish up here, you're expecting then there to be a new government policy formally uh, declaring that Liz Truss wants higher net immigration. I think she is going to declare that she wants a more liberal approach to high-skilled immigration. And the consequence of that is that the OBR will score it as a positive to economic growth. Okay. Kate, let's talk about this Halloween um, fiscal statement. I mean, because right now, we had the tax cuts, then they were all unwound by Jeremy Hunt. But we're going to be hearing, well, we're led to believe that we're going to be hearing a lot of spending. So how is it, I think I'm right in saying that 
the, the list trust package was something like se was a 70 billion pound hole blown in the accounts. Now, Jeremy Hunter said, okay, I'm going to ax all the tax cuts. So that will fill half of that hole. What are they going to do with the other half? Well, Jeremy Hunt's saying that every department's on the chopping block, including defense, including health. Today, he suggested that he did want to get defense spending up to 3% of GDP by 2030, but he has not yet paid lip service to the pledge to get it up to 2.5% by 2026, a much shorter time frame and a substantial sum of money for which there are already rumors going about about who, who may resign next. And by the way, we should talk a bit about because the, the defense pledge is important, why? The defense pledge is important for several reasons. Liz Truss made it in her leadership campaign, albeit she made a lot of pledges in her leadership campaign that have been rolled back in several <laughs> weeks, so how much weight you put on that is one thing. But given the fact that, I think this is also a very personal issue for Liz Truss, because if she were to rank her accomplishments in government over her whole time in cabinet, the fact that she and Boris Johnson came out very hard on Russia, arguably some of the, the hardest language and appropriate language in my opinion um, in all of the EU, and have been such an ally of Ukraine, um, is very important to her. And to roll back on any kind of commitment while Russia is still being so aggressive towards Ukraine, I think she will see as a deep failure. Um, again, perhaps adding to lists over the past few weeks of, of, of things that have gone wrong. I would expect her to think that rolling back almost all of those tax pledges has also been a big failure. Um, but as you say, Fraser, it, it doesn't cover the black hole completely. So it's now estimated that the OBR are going to report a 60 billion to 70 billion pound black hole. And what Jeremy Hunt did on Monday accounted for about 32 billion pounds by rolling back almost all of those tax cuts. So let's assume, and you know, at the, mar at the moment, markets have calmed slightly with Jeremy Hunt. Um, the cost of government borrowing for five, 10, 30-year gilts has dipped, to be fair to him. Um, so let's assume that things, broadly speaking, move in his direction or don't get too much worse in the markets he's still going to have to find something like 30, 35, 40 billion pounds to cover this hole. And he has to do it in a matter of weeks. He's not even familiar with his own department's budget, let alone any other department budget. And now he has to find, ta to put this in perspective, when David Cameron and George Osborne in 2010 announced their first round of spending cuts for the next three years, that was estimated to be about 24 billion pounds. And Jeremy Hunt's probably looking for about 30 if not more. That is the extent to which he has to find huge cuts in a very short period of time. Um, and as one minister said to me um, in, a, in a piece um, uh, that's out tomorrow, you know, they could ask the markets nicely if they can borrow again, but we've seen how that's gone. Um, it strikes people that borrowing is no longer the option, so you either have the very tough options in the short term of spending cuts or tax hikes. He's doing the tax hikes, and now come the spending cuts. Okay. So, Katie, in theory, this government has got quite a long time to run, all of next year and right to the end of the year after that. It's hard to imagine right now this continuing for um, the best part of 18 months. But um, what... I, I won't ask you to give your best guess for how long this trust will survive. But what are people saying about the, the alternatives? If they didn't think this, this trust can't, I mean, what is keeping her there? Because when, when she basically said that Quasi Quartang would be sacked for doing what she told him to do, right? This is why I feel a bit sorry for Quasi Quartang. Um, it's funny, I actually saw him after his budget, he was having a drink in the pub, right, in the round corner of her offices, and he looked really cheery. 
And I couldn't, I couldn't quite work out why he was so cheery, but he's one of these guys who thinks optimism will prevail, you know? Uh, anyway, I mean, it's as, it hasn't in this time. Um, so I do feel sorry for Quasi. Um, and, but, but what I can't work out was why, you know, she could blame him, get away with it, and still be there. So why is she still in her job? Because I presume not many Tories can genuinely believe that was going to be Liz Truss and Jeremy Hunt together leading them to victory in the next election. So if they don't think that's going to happen, they need to get rid of her. So why is she still here now? I think before you oust a leader, at least some Tory MPs think you have to have a backup plan or know what you want to do after the regicide. Um, and I think you could look at uh, how long I think it took to oust Boris Johnson following Partygate, it wasn't immediate, it dragged on for some time. It's often not what you expect, which is the final straw. In the case of Boris Johnson, it was a Chris Pincher scandal, allegations about the Deputy Chief mm -hmm. Whip. Um, and it was what prompted MPs to say, even though we don't know who we want to replace Boris Johnson, we think things are now so bad, we're just going to get rid of him and then take a step into the unknown. And then you go. Liz Truss. Mm. And I think some MPs are now thinking, do we want to do that again? <laughs> um, so while there are definitely letters going in, and I think the suggestion from Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee, who obviously gets all the no confidence letters, is that it's, it's over now what, what you would normally need to trigger a no confidence vote. Um, but technically, Liz Truss is a new leader, so she's safe for a year. And therefore, it would have to get to a higher threshold, a third, a half, before he moved. So what is stopping some MPs I've spoken to who are completely adamant they don't want Liz Truss to lead them into the next election from sending a letter right now as they think the party has to think soberly and actually work, work out how they're going to unify around a candidate um, and potentially skip out the membership, potentially try and get Liz Truss to resign rather than change the rules to force her out. They worry that that could look a bit establishment setup type thing. Um, and that's the preferred option. The problem, though, is there is no unity around a successor. Um, so if you spend the day talking to Tory MPs, ministers and former ministers, you have some people saying, you know what, actually, Boris Johnson, I didn't want him five months ago. I called for him to go, but now I'm changing my mind and he was a good campaigner. Um, and these are the, some of these are the same people who resigned you know, in order to push him out. That's how much things have changed. Um, then you have others saying Rishi Sunak, that is the person who should take over. Obviously came second in the leadership contest and lots of his warnings have come to fruition and therefore he is vindicated, he is the person to calm the markets, he's the person for this crisis. But there's still lots of bad blood towards Rishi Sunak amongst Tory MPs, um, Boris Johnson loyalists who think that he you know, triggered Boris Johnson's downfall when he resigned, didn't like the fact he did his signature on all those budget measures back in the day. And but uh, how big is that constituency, Katie? Because I guess that Boris Johnson, I've just finished them. Um, my, my former colleague Sebastian Payne has just written a book about the fall of Boris Johnson. I've just read a preview of it. And I was really struck reading that book, just how much Boris always thought Rishi was out to get him. That he didn't really, he wasn't really friends with him apparently. It was just, it was Dominic Cummings' idea to make him Chancellor, according to the book. Yeah. And I was really struck all the way through that Boris was just convinced this treacherous little, which is completely not how I saw it. But if Boris thinks that, fair enough. But is there a significant number of MPs who also see Rishi Sunak with the same 
as the great yeah. betrayer, as it were. So I think there's two things. I think there are a number of MPs who do see him, as Boris Johnson seems to have done, as someone who cannot be trusted and almost allergic to him. The idea that you could almost imagine him doing something a bit kamikaze were Rishi Sunak to become leader. I think that's a small group, but, you know, with someone like Nadine Doris, what would she do? Would some of these people consider resigning the whip to make a point? Would they put letters in? I, yeah. I, I think, but then the bigger problem, I think, is you have a second group who don't have a personal dislike of Rishi Sunak, but just think, oh, there's this group who seem to really, really dislike that person, so how does that unify the party? So you end up in a situation where you have MPs saying, well, Rishi can't unite the party. We need a unity candidate. Then you hear names like Ben Wallace or Penny Mordaunt, even Kit Malthouse, the Malthouse Compromise. Um, but the problem with a unity candidate is as soon as they get into number 10 and make a single decision, they're not going to be a unity candidate anymore. Right. Um, and this Tory party is looking pretty ungovernable. Um, so I think okay. that whoever you bring in, I can't really imagine this being a peace and harmony uh, succession. Well, we could do a little experiment Which here. Which keeps her a little bit safer maybe, but maybe not tonight. <laughs> well, what we can do tonight is I'm going to, I'm going to read out the name of the five people in Bookmaker's Favourite to succeed Liz Truss. And then, after I've read them out, I'm going to read them again, and you guys can put up your hand if you think they would be the best leader. So imagine you have to choose one of the five, and then ask yourself which of those five you would choose. And you can be our little, our little focus group here, right? Um, the Bookmaker's Favourite, Rishi Sunak, of course. Number two, Penny Mordaunt, we saw her in the Commons the other day. Um, number three, Jeremy Hunt, our new Chancellor. Four, Ben Wallace, Defence Secretary, and the fifth most likely successor to this trust is Boris Johnson. So, imagine you had to choose between one of these five characters. Let's start with hands up for Boris Johnson. Okay, how many do you reckon that is? Ten, okay. Ben Wallace? Okay, a bit more than Boris. Jeremy Hunt? About similar to Ben. Penny Mordens. Ooh, more similar to Boris. And Rishi Sunak, the clear winner. Look at that sea Rishi of hands man. for Team Rishi. James, you brought some friends tonight, eh? Uh, okay. So, this is... Um, there we go, ladies and gentlemen. The clear winner. Well, things are looking good for Rishi. But the thing is, Kate, that the idea of, of getting in... Um, a new chancellor was to calm the markets. Is that really working? Can we see now the markets thinking, oh, we were really worried about this, but now, now we're quite chilled, so we're going to drop our borrowing costs? Well, they have fallen somewhat, so you can almost time it to the minute, thanks to the Spectator Data Hub, which does track this every 10 minutes. Uh, but the cost for government, government, government borrowing, 5, 10, 30 years, Almost as soon as Jeremy Hunt started speaking, rolling back those tax pledges, you did start to see it fall basically in real time. Um, and for five and 10 year guilt yields, it fell to under 4% within minutes of Jeremy Hunt making these announcements. So I think given the fact that the new chancellor set out to have a very different experience from the old one, uh, when Kwasi Kwarteng announced his mini budget on the Friday, markets got wobbly, we went into the weekend. To be fair, Kwarteng then went on the media and said, you haven't seen anything yet, paraphrasing, but that's pretty much the vibe. Uh, and we come in on Monday, the markets open and the borrowing costs shoot up. Jeremy Hunt not only avoided that, he actually saw markets level out a little bit. 
But I think one of the real concerns now, and it's something that may not, may be able to be undone, it may not, is that borrowing costs stay higher than they otherwise would have been. That interest rates are now going to be higher than they otherwise would have been. And Fraser will remind me, and it's a very important point, that this is an international story. It isn't as if there's a Western country right now that's, you know, markets are just begging to lend to on the cheap. It's not so much that we've entered into a new era, it's that we're back to an old one. Um, we're over cheap money. Markets care again about how much governments borrow. And we're back to a time when markets are going to dictate, based on their borrowing costs, when they see bad policy. And by bad policy, I mean when someone says, I'm going to borrow an incredible amount of money, and I'm not even going to pretend to have a plan to pay this back. And frankly, that is what Liz Truss and Quasi Quartain did in their mini budget. Um, so, you know, many countries are suffering from a higher cost of borrowing and higher interest rates. But if you compare the UK, it is now quite an ugly outlier. It's not a great time to be an outlier. So I think the remaining question, and the 31st of October may be when we get more indication of this, Fraser, is whether or not we can get these rates and these borrowing costs back down to look less like an outlier and to be more on par with other countries. That, that question is a, a big one. Um, but I think Jeremy Hunt will actually be quite happy with what happened over these past few days because we did see a slight drop in the cost for government to borrow, um, which is, you know, the way he wants it to be moving. Right. Well, let's take some questions. Um, if you put up your hands, I will take a bunch of them because there was so much to discuss. So we'll try and get through as many as we can. Um, right, my colleague Rianne's coming down here on the right. And uh, do you have anybody on the left? No. Tough. But right, Rianne, why don't you? Um, right. Thank you, John. Um, so let's see if we can get. Um, okay, choose, choose anybody you like to look off for him. So, is it switched on? Look, I can hear you. If you shout out to me, I'll get working. I was going to say so, in the event that we accept that Liz is over and there needs to be uh, a change of leader, but there is no appetite for a proper. Uh, election and a proper race and it has to be a sort of coronation Gordon Brown style, Michael Howard style. Is there not a risk that the party membership and the party in the country who went for Liz feel completely disenfranchised and disengaged and are not going to knock on doors and deliver leaflets for someone that basically the backbench parliamentary party have put up? Okay, so, so basically you're saying that if there is a coronation and one which perhaps understandably doesn't subject the country to one of these like two month ordeals again. Would the Tory party members feel as if they were stitched up and might they be less inclined to go and campaign for somebody foisted um, upon them by the MPs? Any Tory party members in the audience tonight, by the way? Okay. Uh, would, how many of you would trust MPs to choose somebody? How many of you would like it to go back to you guys again if there were to be a change of leader? No. See, that's my suspicion as well. I think the, the member, even the members are thinking, God, we can't handle these debates. Just please. No, anything but the debates. Um, but it's, I mean, it, 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 James, there, the, tell us the options, because people talk about a unity candidate, right? But this doesn't sound to me like a party that's going to go for unity. But is it possible to, first of all, is she protected? by the rule which says you can't challenge a leader for, for the first year. 
I mean, we read today that um, Graham Brady's had more than the threshold needed to trigger a leadership contest, but surely that, that all that is irrelevant. It doesn't matter how many letters have been sent in to him if the leader is protected for a year. So how secure is she under these rules? And if she isn't secure, by what mechanism would the party be most likely to choose another leader? Well, the first rule of the Tory party is that there are no rules. Um, so I think if a majority of Tory MPs wanted the rules to change, the 1922 committee would facilitate that. I, I think what you've seen, though, is that Graham Brady has uh, seen two leaders go without having to change the rules. Um, with Theresa May, he said, I'm prepared to ballot the executive on changing the rules. That was enough to prompt her to resign. Uh, with Boris Johnson, you know, the ministerial resignations took the matters out of the 922 committee's hands, even though it was going to have a discussion about changing the rules uh, the next week if Boris Johnson had not resigned. I, I think Katie is right, but there is no unity candidate. Um, Liz Truss told one visitor to Downing Street this week that she was safe because the party would not be able to agree on who, could, who should succeed her. I think ultimately the Tory prediction is so, the Tory predicament is so bad that this is not going to be a block forever. Um, they will find a way, whether it's a rapid contest or not. There are lots of rumours, lots of theories swirling around about how to do this. One is that you have an MP's ballot, but you need 100 nominations to get on the ballot paper. Mm -hmm. The theory goes that you could only get 100 nominations to get on the ballot paper if you made it clear that you weren't going to subject the country to a three-month-long contest. Um, I think there is also another question, which is, think back to all the things that Liz Truss said in those hustings. How many of them are still operative today? She said that there would be no new taxes. There will be. She said that there would be no spending cuts. That's gone. I mean, so in some ways, there is, a, there is a mandate question about the current leader in terms of what is her mandate for the policies that she's pursuing because she's had to junk all the things that she stood on, essentially, to win the contest. Right. Um, let's take another question um, from this side of the video. Yeah, uh, I think there is wasted government, and one big area is procurement. Uh, I'm a local councillor in West Berkshire, but... Um, the amount of waste that goes on, and we've got the M4 Junction 12, the temporary lights, it's costing us a fortune. Our highway officers just think it's crazy uh, on the waste in government. And you've got procurement. I know we had problems with track and trace. We've had defence procurement waste as well. Uh, so um, I think that is one area that we seriously should be looking for and windfall taxes would maybe... You may have some comments on that. Right, okay, and, and let's take another couple of comments on that as well, yeah, <clears throat> from the side of them. I wonder what the um, panel's view is on the electoral possibilities for the opposition, and will the collapse of the blue wall mean a revival of the Liberal Democrats? Interesting question, and let's take a third one um, from over there. Yes, uh, on the markets, um, it's obviously not sustainable at the moment of this at the moment with um, resonations and there's a worry that they'll wait to the 31st for a uh, financial statement from uh, the new Chancellor. Mm. But surely markets will probably rally when there's so much instability at the moment in the current government. 
to actually have a more solidified approach uh, with a new uh, prime minister uh, in place. And this is just complete shambles. I mean, it's, every day is chaos. This is not sustainable at the moment. It's a complete joke. Something needs to change. Uh, Liz Truss is not the answer, clearly. What is going to happen next? The Tories need to sort that out. What, what is the thinking? What, wait, wait for Jeremy Hunt's uh, statement? Or um, what is the next steps? Because this is only going to cause more problems in the long run. Okay, that's good. Well, something I should have said at the beginning is that, um, as regular Coffee House listeners will know, we're sponsored by Canaccord Genuity uh, Wealth Management, and who sponsored us tonight. And I should have mentioned that right at the offset. Um, now, if any of you are investors, then you should, of course, be checking out Canaccord. But also, you will... Um, You'll also notice that this is not particularly... I, I'm not sure how much money I would invest in UK PLC right now, given that the economic policy changes from one morning to one afternoon. But I wonder, Kate, I mean, uh, the, the, the point here is basically, I think the gentleman is saying that we're never going to get any stability in this rate. If you're an overseas investor, when you see, you know, you don't know if there's going to be a windfall tax one day to the next, uh, one of this, this morning we hear of a Jeremy Hunt thinking of a windfall tax on banks. Don't know if he is going to do it yet. But right now, you're moving from a country which used to be pretty reliable and solid to one that is quite capable of changing its tax policy at the click of the fingers. So do you think all of this is starting to hurt the real economy now as, as well as the markets? And, the, and it will continue to do so until the Conservatives manage to give us something resembling a stable government? Or do you think right now that a Labour government is something that would give us more economic stability? Well, I think you could certainly argue that if a Labour government came in, it would have a better sense of what it actually planned to do. And to your point, sir, markets really do value stability. So almost... The, and, these days, it's very difficult to tell the different economic differences between the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. So it's actually very hard. In fact, I think the Labour Party now supports more of what was in the mini-budget than what the government has actually rolled back. So it's very difficult with this Labour leader in particular to make the case that, you know, we're going full-blown socialism. I, you know, I think economic policy would certainly be more left-wing. But given where the Tories are now, I think it's much harder to make that case. Um, to the first gentleman's point, and to your point for it's about windfall taxes, this is why one of the many reasons I think they're so dangerous. Um, it isn't just that these windfall taxes are bringing in a very small proportion of money compared to the black holes that these governments are claiming they'll fill. I mean, you know, we're talking five, six billion pounds maybe from the oil and gas companies to cover what was going to be, we don't know what the policy is now from April next year, but was going to be a 60 to 150 billion pound package. And that small amount of money um, is being traded for the principle, A, that people actually own their own wealth, they own their own income, it doesn't just belong to government to come and snatch it whenever they feel so compelled. And also, it definitely increases instability because what company that experiences a good year isn't going to know or isn't going to think that the government's going to come along and take it away? Um, I, I, think the, I think that Jeremy Hunt has done something for stability, because don't forget, we didn't just get rid of Kwasi Kwarteng as chancellor, we got rid of a 
a, net, an, a prime minister who had power, right? The assumption now is that if a decision about the economy is made, it's made by Jeremy Hunt. Um, there was a joke going around today that when Liz Truss and PMQ said, I'm a fighter, the markets fell. Um, we can actually check on the data hub if that's true or not, but the sense is that Jeremy Hunt's in control of this now. So far more was ceded when the chancellor was fired. It isn't enough stability, not by a long shot. Uh, I think a lot of companies now are going to be waiting to see even what happens in the next general election to know if they should be investing here or there. They're going to want to know the Labour Party's policies because that might actually be what comes into play. And then very quickly to the first gentleman on waste. You don't have to convince me that there's a lot of government waste out there. I am with you. The difficulty is that while I think finding millions of savings is very important, it's all taxpayer money, we're not in millions anymore. We're in many, many billions. And this means that it's not just about what happens on the 31st. Labor, conservatives, internationally, so many Western countries are up to their necks in debt. Uh, markets have decided that they're not going to land on the cheap anymore. We have a real crisis on our hands in terms of what people have gotten used to and what the state's actually going to be able to deliver and what, what promises, especially around the tough stuff, like pensions and healthcare, it really can make for the future. Um, so by all means, you know, flag where we can save the millions, that's important, but unfortunately we're in much more dangerous territory now. And Katie, what about um, you know, if the Tories are collapsing? Are the Liberal Democrats who don't seem to be doing very well out of this? I mean, you couldn't almost feel sorry for the Lib Dems. I mean, what has to really... They never seem to get any benefit out of anything going wrong. Um, but, I thought Liz Truss as Prime Minister. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so what, do, do we base, are we looking here at votes going straight from the Tories to the Labour Party? Is that what's happening? There's no Green Party resurgence, there's no Lib Dem resurgence. I think it's hard to tell because... Ultimately, Labour now have this huge poll lead, but it's not been around for too long. And I think it is true that the Liberal Democrats I've spoken to were a bit more buoyant about their chances when they were going up against Boris Johnson. Mm. Um, and at that point, it wasn't so much that Labour was surging ahead, um, but you saw in lots of these blue wall seats in the by-elections, the Lib Dems were turning over huge Tory majorities. And the Lib Dems obviously tend to do well in by-elections, but that was successive by-elections. And actually, when the Tories decided to get rid of Boris Johnson, I remember someone saying, you know, no one is sadder about this than Ed Davey. Um, <laughs> because ultimately, it, it had an effect that was bringing people to the Liberal Democrats. Mm. I think we now see a situation where... Labour is so far out in front, the Tories are ultimately losing reputation for fiscal credibility, and therefore you're almost having this big paradigm shift. And I do think if you look uh, historically, when Labour tends to do well, the idea, or when people are not scared of a Labour majority government, parties like the Lib Dems and others can do a bit better, mm -hmm. because you have less of a situation which you had in the, you know, when it was, you don't want if you don't want Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister, don't risk a vote to the Liberal Democrats because you could end up in that. Whereas if people are more relaxed about the prospect of Keir Starmer as Prime Minister, I think it can have the effect that you know, people think they can go to those smaller parties. So I think it could be good for the Liberal Democrats. I think that specifically they thought Boris Johnson and the Blue Wall was good for them. And if everyone is moving towards Labour, you could see that split. But let's see what tactical voting does. Um, I, I definitely don't think the Liberal Democrats are in a bad position right now. Okay. Um, 
hands up if you intend to vote conservative at the next election. Hands up if you intend to vote Labour at the next election. Okay, hands up if you, um, Lib Dems. Okay, and hands up if you are in despair having to choose any one of them. Okay. None of the above wins quite handsomely. Yes, I don't know. Anyway, okay, let's take some more um, questions. Ma'am, and, and we'll take three, so if you can ask one and then just choose somebody. Does this work? Yep, yep. No. Um, do you think ultimately the Conservative Party should split? Because uh, there have been divergence ever since Margaret Thatcher brought down Thatcher, Major, Cameron, you name it, every other leader that's coming in on a rotational basis. But should it just split and have two parties? Okay, good question. Um, and sir, in the middle, and then somebody up there. Um, yeah, just around the Labour shadow candidate, um, I looked today at uh, Wikipedia and I just couldn't believe how lightweight the Labour uh, shadow candidate is. And, you know, if that is genuinely the political option that you know, some of us face, like how much upgrading does... Um, Labour have to do over the next couple of years um, and then segue obviously with my accent uh, I just want to know what the panel's thoughts are around the implications for um, Scottish um, Nationalist Party and the potential um, uh, independence implications okay, of this. And then just a quick one sir if you can. Is it sensible for the current franchise of the Tory party to continue as it is? We've had several elections in the past. We chose Duncan Smith, and that wasn't a success. We've chosen uh, the current leader, and that doesn't appear to be a success. And we've got an electorate of about 180,000, largely out of touch with younger people, who now represent rather a large part of the voters. And is there a chance that the method by which the Tory party elects their leader can and should change? Point. Do you want to take that one, James? Um, oh, um, with some sympathy in the audience as well. Oh, yeah, one more question, okay. Hello, um, can I focus group you back? You know these ministers much better than any of us do. Which of the five candidates do you four think would be, in these difficult situations, the best prime minister? Difficult to choose. James, if you're absolutely forced to choose. <laughs> um, well, I'll, I'll take the question about the Tory franchise. Um, I, I, thought, I thought William Hague, who introduced the rules that were used in the last leadership contest, made a very interesting observation, which is he said, look, I introduced these rules because I thought we had to offer people membership to get people... To, there, there had to be some point to joining a political party. And I think he hoped that this would kind of reignite a mass membership party. The problem is, it hasn't done that, and yet you've got these rules. I mean, I mean, this is a problem, which is, you know, the rules would work very well if, you know, the Tory party had half a million or a million members. It is more of a challenge when the Tory party membership is, 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 is the size that it is today. And... Also, I think that so little is known about it. You know, CCHQ are very secretive about the number, 
you know, where in the country they are, all of these questions. So I, I, I think that is, a, that is a challenge. I think there is a, there, I think, there, I think but, I, but I also think that if you want people to join a political party, mm. you have to give them something for that membership. You can't just expect people to go out, you know, knocking on doors in wind and rain and all sorts of things and say, but, but please don't tell us what you think about anything. And so I think that, you know, how to resolve that tension is a real, is a real problem for the Tories. Okay. Um, and by the way, man, I'll tell you an interesting question as to why I'm not going to answer your question. The funny thing is working with these guys, we actually have some things we don't even talk to each other about. I, for example, have got no idea how Katie Bowles voted in the last election. I've no idea which side of the Brexit debate she was on. And um, I wouldn't think of asking her either. Um, and now, I grew up in a household where it was rude to talk about politics, kind of ironic what I ended up doing, right? But the, the thing is, people in our line of work, if you come out for somebody, you come out for somebody. It's a sort of big thing. Other people prefer not to come out for anybody because as journalists, we're sort of here to report on them rather than to cheerlead. And that's the position which I thought we should take in the last leadership contest. I mean, sure, you can, sometimes you do get a newspaper who picks a candidate and urges the readers to vote for the candidate, and that sort of distorts the reporting. I'm not always sure that readers are best served by that sort of thing. And also, I'm the editor, because if I said this, it would be, you know, it's, it was such a dodgy president. So that's why I'm going to wimpishly come out of, of your one. Um, so, unless any of you guys want to answer us. The only thing I think on it is... Okay, don't tell me if I don't know. I know. <laughs> oh, just on the question of, you know, the candidates, I think the Tory party is really careful if they are going to ask another leader that uh, with all the calls going for another general election, I can't imagine a situation where Tory MPs vote for a general election and ultimately they would need to do that. Um, ultimately, it's Turkey's voting for Christmas, if you look at the polls at the moment, even if there are some Tory MPs who look to opposition and just think, take me there, this has just got too much. Um, but I still think you can end up in a, a snap election, early election territory, if the public mood turns. And if the current situation stays very chaotic, I think that's one way where the public just completely loses patience and actually says... If you can't sort it out, we want an election. And once that happens, it's quite hard to ignore. And then I also think if they do oust and go for a third leader, which is pretty unprecedented, I think the risk of going for an unknown is that uh, you, know, you end up with a repeat or someone who's untested. And once again, people say, well, where is the mandate? So I think in a way, just logically speaking to MPs, I wonder if going for a candidate the public already are quite aware of is going to be a smarter move. Um, then, then, you know, lots of people like Penny Morden, for example, but then I've had MPs say, well, what, is that? what if that is Liz Truss Mark II? Because it's someone who, you know, lots that some people think is very conscientious and so forth, but it's untested in terms of that level of role. Um, I think um, to your question about candidates as well, it was very telling when almost everybody in this room was pretty confident about the leader out of that list they would like, and yet wasn't confident that overall they were bound to vote Conservative or even Labour, really had no sense which way they were going. And I think it speaks to the fact that, well, those five candidates have so many merits. We are now in territory where anybody that the Tory party puts up is going to have some kind of fatal flaw. Uh, you know, Boris Johnson, the scandal comes with him. People like 
Ben Wallace and Penny Morden, they might have some great qualities, but nobody's really sure what they stand for outside of areas like defense. Um, that wasn't cleared up for Penny Morden in the last leadership race. It's not obvious it would be cleared up anytime soon. Um, someone like Rishi Sunak, it's, it's very difficult when the grassroots of the Tory party have voted against you. People don't like to be told that they voted the wrong way. We learned that with Brexit. We learned that in a lot of different ways. Um, and so their merits are almost put to the side and those fatal flaws, whether they're the person's fault or not, come through. Um, and that, I think, sp says, like, for me, that is one of the most difficult things for the Tory party right now, is that it is just naming off different people who could potentially be leader. Indeed, it's bringing in different people to be leader, and it's not satisfied, and that suggests to me that there has to be some kind of reset, rethink, and perhaps like a, a, a long moment of reflection about what this party stands for now, because that seems so muddled. And the idea of splitting into two parties? Well, look, I mean, electorally, it would be very difficult to find yourself back in power, but you know, it, we don't have to go very far back to remember a time where the Tory party was just delighted with each other. December 2019, mm -hmm. you know, it, it really wasn't that long ago that Tory party, uh, Tory um, MPs were praising the Prime Minister, delighted to work with one another. Of course, there was always a small bickering, but, you know, bet between when Boris won that huge majority and when COVID hit, and that was a very small window of time, you know, I remember having conversations with um, friends and journalists being like, well, what are we going to write about? Everyone's just so delighted. Everyone's so happy. Everyone's getting along. And, like, so, honestly, like, COVID was our fault in that sense because we obviously jinxed it. But um, it's... Uh, it re you really don't have to go back that far to find a time yeah. that the Tory party was well, happy with each other. So I don't think it's impossible to achieve. Uh, I've never worked out what it was split over because it sort of changes the whole time. It was for anti-lockdown at one point, for or against Brexit at another point, um, for or against tax rises at another point. And it's always different sort of people. That's the funny thing. So they're, they're, they are at each other's throats a lot, but usually the different sort of people and even... I find it rather, uh, Katie's written a fascinating piece for the magazine tomorrow where she talks about the Tory left and the Tory right. Uh, and, on, uh, and I quite often like, struggle to work out who are the One Nation group, what do they believe? If you look at their manifesto, um, it just says all motherhood and apple pie stuff. So you, you might look at the fighting and think these guys should split, they're, they're just irreconcilable. But a lot of these guys just join for the political violence. They like to fight. They're like the Millwall fans of politics, these guys. They just show up for, for the gruesome bits. So I don't think there's much you can really do with it. Um, James? Look, look, parties create internal coalitions to avoid having to create external coalitions. I think one thing I would say about 2019 is we forget, uh, we shouldn't forget what a unifying force Jeremy Corbyn was for the Tory party. Because whatever, your, whatever part of the Tory party you came from, the idea of Corbyn in Downing Street was something that concentrated the mind. And whether you, and, and I think that element in 2019 was one of the things that helped unify the Tory party. I think there is a, there is a, I mean, there, there, there is a way for the Tory party to reunite, to work out what it stands for again. And I actually think in an odd way, we are now in a new era of politics where uh, fiscal conservatism is going to be required of all parties because what we are seeing, as Kate was saying, is that the markets are no longer prepared to 
lend money as cheaply as they have done since the financial crisis to governments. And that is going to constrain governments, what governments can do. Uh, and what Liz Truss found is you can't borrow lots of money to fund permanent tax cuts. I think what the Labour Party are going to find is that it's now far more difficult to, uh, to borrow lots of money to fund permanent day-to-day -day spending commitments. Mm. And that is, that is actually not... This is not something that this Prime Minister can exploit for obvious reasons, but this is, that is actually going to create political terrain that is not unfavourable to the Conservatives. On the question of Scotland, I'll just quickly give you uh, my thoughts on that. Um, having a Labour government, there are some dividends over a Labour majority. One of them is that we look, for a while it looked as if they were going to change the voting system and move to proportional representation. If they had done that, you can see circumstances where the Tories might be out of power for a long, long, long time. But now it looks as if they're going to be the beneficiaries of first-past-the-post with a stonking big majority. If they get that, they probably wouldn't want to change it. But the other upside to a Labour majority, if, if you're, of course, if you're not a Labour person, is that it makes it a lot harder for Nicola Sturgeon to go on about Tories, evil English, da-da-da-da-da. I mean, this takes a lot of sting out of the force of her attack. Also, the, the SNP are really flummoxed by Brexit. Because if they want an independent Scotland to be in the EU, which is their position, then by, by logical extension, they would need a hard border with England, a Northern Ireland-style border. And we've seen how that works out. So when you come to consider the practicalities of separation now, Brexit has made those practicalities even more off-putting than they were in 2014. And having a Labour government um, would make it harder for Nicola Sturgeon to have a big fat Tory to dislike in Westminster. So I, even though the opinion polls are still quite close, I'm still um, less worried about the union than I've been for, for quite some time. Uh, we should interrupt proceedings. I've just had a message from a minister saying, apparently Wendy Morton has not been sacked now. So, um, so uh, the confusion continues. Okay, so the chief whip has been unfired during the course of this hour. Well, if we keep going, we might even get Quasi Quartang back, you know? Yeah. <laughs> You never know how things will go, right. Okay, um, let's, let's take a few more questions then. Right, Riam, and down at the front, and anybody really? Yep, so one from there, one from the middle, and one from the right, yeah. Hiya. Hi. Um, so as we've seen from the vote that we just did, um, there's clearly a lot of political disenfranchisement um, in the public. Um, out of a lot of the political sideliners at the moment, like Farage, uh, Boris, um, maybe Osborne, or, or um, uh, a few more. Um, do you think that any of them would come forward um, and start a new political party, or kind of start joining various teams and try and split things up? Very interesting question. And one from the middle? Yep. Um, following on from the discussion about who may or may not be the next Prime Minister, one name that hasn't been mentioned is that of Michael Gove. Now, I don't know, are there any whisperings amongst the corridors in Westminster that we should know about that we haven't already heard? There are plenty of whisperings. Gove's normally behind most of them. <laughs> um, he, he's, hasn't he retired? Um, I, I would be very surprised if Michael Gove ran for leader again. Uh, today, uh, you know, you know in, in, in various sports events, they have kind of special cameras that focus on one thing. I felt today there should have been a special camera on Michael Gove's eyebrows at PMQs. They were, they were remarkable. They were going kind of all, all, all over the place. I mean, I, I think that 
one of the things Linda Baines Johnson used to say that you want people um, inside the tent pissing out rather than outside the tent pissing in. I, I think Liz Truss might take time to reflect that it would be rather better to have Michael Gove inside the tent pissing out than um, him running around making jokes such as, uh, what was the one yesterday? Um, I used to be Liz Truss's boss, a job that's now shared between Jeremy Hunt and the bond market. Um, and I think that, you know, I think this is, but I think this takes you to a, a, a serious point, the point that, that, that Katie was making earlier. It is very hard to whip and discipline a party when you have people who have been a cabinet minister for years, you know, they are done, not, they're not going to go looking for preferment from this prime minister, they're just going to say what they think about everything. And you saw that. I mean, I, I, you know, I think one of the most remarkable things about the Michael Gove intervention at Tory conference about the, the budget, which I think mean, began the unravelling of the 45p tax pledge, was he was sitting as close to this trust as I'm sitting to you now, Fraser, when he said it. Um, and I think that tells you something. This is not some kind of whispered comment in a corridor or something. This was said live on national television with the Prime Minister, you know, about six feet away. I think one thing to watch out for with Michael Gove, um, <coughs> and there are a few, um, is effectively, while Michael Gove, I think James obviously says, is unlikely to perhaps put a himself forward. Um, he did back Kemi Badenoch, you know, he was instrumental actually in terms of her leadership campaign. And Kemi Badenoch is still spoken of as a future leader. I think I'd be surprised if she were, if Liz Truss is pushed out, I'd be surprised if Kemi uh, Badenoch was brought in. But I think when people talk about potential leader of the opposition, she's always top of the list if the Tories do go out of power. And I think that you can imagine Michael Gove playing a key role in that political project. So I think that his frontline politics career uh, is not over. Um, it's just perhaps not, perhaps, perhaps he has given up on number 10. Okay, we were going to take a question from that side as well. Anybody got a mic? Not yet. Well, meanwhile, we can ask your question about the insurgent party. Now, this is, I don't know, um, this is a theme of, <coughs> that, um, that Dominic Cummings is very big on right now, that the Conservatives are basically over, busted flush, and from this wreckage, a new force will emerge, perhaps a new populist force. I'm not quite sure what nature it will take. Um, anybody wants to comment on the prospects? Because one of the funny things about Britain is we're the only country in Europe without any populist party in Parliament or with any significant support in the polls. Now, that's pretty unusual. I mean, only yesterday, Sweden got a new government with the Sweden Democrats as part of it. And we, we've had nothing. I mean, Nigel Farage has just come back to um, you know, um, commentary now. But uh, any thoughts on whether there might be a, a new political party stirring in from the wreckage of the Tories or not? It takes a lot to kill off one of the major British political parties. If you just think through... But they're doing a lot, aren't they? Well, the no, Tories are doing everything they possibly no, no, no. can. They're doing a no, good here, job. But then, just look at this, right? As we sit here tonight, Labour are polling over 50% in the polls. Yeah. They are on course for a 100-seat majority-plus landslide. Yeah. Until 2019, they were led by Jeremy Corbyn. And we were all talking about the end of the Labour Party, how the Labour Party was going to split. You had Change UK. Do you remember that when various yeah, centrist yeah, Labour yeah, figures defected? Yeah. I just think that these, these British political parties, the, the two main parties, are just very, very hard to finish off. And they can make some terrible mistakes, as Labour did with Jeremy Corbyn, and still recover from them. So I, I would just caution. I think every time people say these things are different, mm. uh, 
you, you, should, you should be wary. I mean, I, I, not to pick on it, because lots of people thought this. After the 1992 election, The Guardian ran a piece saying that you know, Labour could never win a majority on the first-past-the-post. They needed to embrace proportional representation and electoral pacts with Liberal Democrats. That Britain was now like Japan, where the, where the, uh, the, Liberal, Democrat, the Liberal Democratic Party had governed for generation after generation. At the next election, Labour won a 179-seat majority. You know, I mean, don't... Every time people tell you that this time it's different, count the spoons, because it very rarely is. I, I also wonder about public appetite. Um, you know, we've had a lot of refreshes of the Tory party, and this government in particular came in and decided it was going to be completely different. It exploded very quickly, but I think people are increasingly tired of being promised that things are going to be completely different and would actually like some consistency, um, especially going into this winter. It's going to be really difficult. I mean, you know, the government alone is in chaos, but on top of that, we have an NHS that really may break down this winter. I mean, the figures over the summer were terrifying. Seven million people uh, under NHS England on the wait list, a, a record high number expected to go up to nine million by 2024. They are talking about blackouts, albeit, you know, that is the, that is the downside scenario, the, the, the most catastrophic scenario at the moment, according to the national grid, would be a few hours of blackout a day. I don't think we should um, dramatize it, but it is on the cards as things that people have to think about and prepare for. Um, energy, the cost of energy is going up, even with these caps that are in place till April. Um, you know, people are going to be paying more than double what they were paying last year for their energy bills. This is going to be a really tough winter, and I think people would just like a little bit of stability to get through it. So it's not to say that, you know, a, you know a, a, an incredible political entrepreneur can't come along and entice people to vote a different way, but I think for the short to medium term, People just want to get through it, and I think what's happening in Westminster right now is doing so much damage to the Tories, not just because they're exploding the ideas that they claim to care about, like the idea of tax cuts, the idea of a smaller state, which have blown up over the past few weeks, um, but also because they, they look like they're playing at politics when we're entering one of the most difficult winters that especially younger people are, are, are going to have ever experienced, um, and I don't think they're going to appreciate what seems like games. Okay. Um, the left. Let's have a left field question from the left, or even a straight down the middle Hello? question. Hi. Uh, Whoa. I heard a voice of God. Yes, God. Um, after Brexit, um, Richard Tice talked about losers' consent. Uh, Rishi Sunak lost the leadership election. So if MPs decide he's the one after a coronation. Do you think there'll be a huge membership walkout? Well, I think this room would be delighted. Um, oh, I don't know. It's a good question, yeah. but let's... But there's, there's been some quite interesting membership polling, though, I think just today and yesterday, which is suggesting, and obviously take all polls with a little bit of a pinch of salt, but it was suggesting that actually were you to go to the membership now, Rishi Sunak would win, which doesn't mean it isn't... While I remember at Tory party conference speaking to some members in the bars and they said... That, they would be horrified if Liz Truss was pushed out and something they didn't vote for, like Rishi Sunak was pushed in. But I do wonder, when you're looking at that polling, if perhaps there will have been a change in the mood. I also saw in that poll, they said that most people who had voted for Liz Truss now regretted it. Now, the question I would want, like, as a Tory membership is, would you want to vote next time around? Because I suspect that forfeitism would say, no, we, we don't. But, so, so, so in answer to your question, I don't think we, we think that because things are so bad now, that I think that um, 
if you manage to get to, I, I was just speaking to a cabinet member just before I came here, saying, look, if we can get into Hong Parliament territory now, rather than 1997-style defeat, that would be a, a really good achievement for us. So a leader who's able to crash land the plane on the Hudson River, as it were, um, uh, uh, rather than the, the wreckage of what might come down, would probably be appreciated by the party as well. But, um, sir? Yeah, like, I think I agree with you. I'm, I'm a Tory member, and I don't, I don't want to vote. In the, I think the MPs, they represent of the country, and they should decide who their leader it will be. And one thing, though, is um, I do feel for Liz Truss. You know, she's in, everybody, we know we all have a laugh here, but she's a person, a woman, and she's going through a lot right now, and who knows what she's going through. Um, but my question is, you're in the room with her, what would you do? What would you say, okay, because right now with the laughing stock of the country, the economy is not great, we've got difficulties, major issues we're facing, NHS crisis, all these things, what would you do? That's right now, would, would, what advice, you're in the room with, you know, with, you know, the 96, 96 committee or something, and be like, Okay, this is what I would do. My, this is my advice to you guys. Because right now everybody can, you know, we're all like complaining, laughing, but someone's got to make a decision here. Right. And what would you do? That's my question. Good question. And we'll take a last question from over here and then we'll, um, then we'll wrap it up, sir. Should we be concerned about what happened at the Chinese embassy in Manchester? Which was what? Just remind the audience. Sorry. Remind the audience what happened. Um, well, the, the, um, the people came out from the embassy and dragged in a, a protester and, and hit him and then let him out. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, right. Well, what, what, would you do if, what would you do if you were Prime Minister? Kate Andrews. Oh, thanks for that one. Um, well, I guess we have to start from here. I'd like to say I wouldn't start from here. Um, but we have to. Um, so I suppose I would do a lot of what Jeremy Hunt's already done, which is doing everything you can to convince the markets that you are still fiscally responsible. And at this point, when I know that, you know, spending cuts have to be found, I would be doing everything I could to convince the party to go for those no-cost supply-side reforms. Um, it's going to be near impossible because in order to get things like planning reform through, childcare reform through, all the stuff, um, I, I would agree with Liz Truss about more liberal immigration policy personally, all of those things require serious political capital. They have none. Um, so I think it will be a losing battle, but I would certainly try. Um, and I will keep the other things I might say to myself. Um, as somebody who really um, was, uh, has been committed um, since my teenagers to a smaller state low-tax policy. It's been quite heartbreaking, frankly, to see those ideas um, put forward without the other side of the ledger being addressed, you know? Low taxes, smaller state also means efficiency gains and less spending. And to have pretended that you didn't have to cut spending is, in my opinion, not remotely free market. And I, I was very, I've been very upset to see it built as such. Um, and if I may just very quickly come to that point about possible buyer's remorse from the the Tory members as well. I think at the moment, something that they're trying to do in government and something that a, a future leader might try to do, which makes a lot of sense given who votes for the Tory party, is they're just desperate to be able to say, you know, I saved you X amount of money on how much your mortgage went up by. You know, this is now a, 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 
a real focus. If, if I can keep your mortgage below a certain rate, if I can get those costs down for you, that is how we're going to keep this thing together. And, you know, that's something that if Rishi, if Rishi Sunak has anything, and I, I think he has a lot of great qualities, um, confidence with the markets and confidence that he could be the one to study that, you know, he, that would certainly be a, a ticket for him. Um, so I, I could see the buyer's remorse. As, as Tory party members watch their mortgage rate go up and watch those costs go up, you can absolutely see why they might now be telling the pollsters that they feel differently about who they voted for. Katie Bowles, if you're a queen of the world or just the prime minister, you had to do one thing, what would you do? <laughs> I, would okay. just, I would just never be prime minister. <laughs> that is the right answer. Right. <laughs> you might need something wrong with you to want to be prime minister, to be honest. You've got a far better job right now, Katie, I think, actually, yeah. So the first thing I would do is... She's got a plan. <laughs> have, how, how long have you been thinking about it? I, I, think that, I think there's a real danger that the government is rushing into October the 31st with no idea of what it actually wants to achieve in that spending review. If you think back, as Kate was saying, to that 2010 Cameron Osborne spending review, they spent about a year in opposition getting ready for that. Jeremy Hunt is trying to do this with Liz Truss in, in, at breakneck speed. And I think one of the things we learn from the mini-budget is when you try and do things really quickly, things go wrong. And I think actually having shredded so much of the mini-budget, I think you could actually say, we're, going, we're pushing this statement back because we want to work out what we want to do. What do they want to protect? You know, I think there's a very good case for saying that you should protect, for example, education spending and uh, R&D spending. Right? But at the moment, this is, they are just they are looking for... You talk, you are, they, they, Jeremy Hunt is going to sit down with cabinet ministers on Friday and try and work out, in a day, big decisions that will change the structure of the British state because you're, you're taking billions off here and billions off there. It would be far better to say, right, we've cancelled most of the mini-budget, we're going to take our time and work out what we are trying to achieve with this spending review rather than just kind of running around with the scissors desperately trying to find things to cut. And because when you try and make decisions at massive pace, you get things wrong. So I was talking to one veteran of the Osborne era at the Treasury today, and they were saying, look, when I think back at things that we regret, we got all these figures about what the reserves were for local councils. So we thought, right, we'll cut local government spending and they can spend their reserves. What we didn't realize was that a fairly small number of councils accounted for a very large proportion of the reserves. So we were cutting local government budgets and that had a far greater effect in some places than others and we didn't really realize that. So I think you, I think you need to just take a breath because if you make decisions at pace, you can, you know, it is called breakneck speed for a reason. And I mean, there is a real danger that they rush into October 31st, and then in a few months' time, everyone says, oh my word, we didn't actually mean to do that. That had some second-order effect that we hadn't realized. So I would suggest slowing down, calm things down, put your foot on the ball, and just say, right, we're going to think about a strategy before we rush into this. I also think it's a very good argument not to have the event on Halloween. <laughs> Great. Well, we've whittled through so many issues at breakneck speed tonight. Thank you so much for joining us here in the Emanuel Centre, for getting these live coffee house shots 
back on the road. And who would have thought we actually ended up with one less resignation than we started with this <laughs> afternoon? This is, this is, stability is creeping back to this government stage by stage. So please join me with thanking our panel and thank you for coming. And thank you to Canaccord Investment as well as sponsor.